Hi everyone and welcome to our first Employment and Industrial Relations Briefing Series for 2023. My name is Wendy Favell, I'm a partner here in the Brisbane office. Um, before I introduce our special guest for today, I just want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting today. I am um, joining today from the lands of the Turrbal and the Yagara people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and to any First Nations people joining us for this presentation today. I'll just shortly introduce our panel. Um, it's a really interesting year, I think, for all of us with the Secure Jobs Better Pay reforms. What we really wanna focus on is some of the practical aspects of this and how we navigate through this year and also what we can expect to see for the year ahead. We have carefully selected a number of questions to go through today. They're the common things that we're talking to our clients about. But if you do have a specific question that you want to ask, you're welcome to use the Q&A feature by the chat function in the control tab to ask your question. Now, if we get a bit carried away and we run out of time to get to your question, please feel free to reach out to your um, relevant HSF contact and they'll be able to talk to you about that. So our topic today, look, I think this legislation is on every everyone's radar. I don't think there's one employer in Australia that isn't impacted in one way or another by these changes. There's a lot of detail in the legislation. It's an extensive kind of shopping list of changes to our system. And what employers are really grappling with this year is how to implement those changes. I think what is clear though, is ultimately the way we think about industrial relations does have to change. This is probably the biggest change to our system in many, many years. And planning is really, really key. Now, we've already put a lot of material out on our website about the detail and the provisions because they are extensive. So have a look at that. We also have a CPD coming up on the 9th of March where four of our guru partners across the country are gonna be discussing kind of a, the key elements of the act and what it means for Australian employers. So if you wanna kind of go back to that level of detail, you're welcome to, to review that. There's also, um, various episodes of our IR podcast, Inside IR, that delves into some of these topics further. I'm sure this is not the last we're going to be talking about this topic, um, so we'll keep you informed as the year progresses. What we want to focus on today is something a little bit different to delving into the detail of the legislation. What we want to deal with today is that some of the practicalities. There's some really common myths or assumptions that have come out in the last couple of months on this legislation. So we want to kind of have a look at those and then also look forward to what is coming next for the rest of the year, as the government has been quite clear about what they're going to focus on, both the first half of this year and the second half of the year. Now, my wonderful colleagues here today, I just want to introduce them now. So we've got Rachel Dawson, who is a fellow partner of mine, joining us from Perth. Hi, Rach. Hi. Um, Shu Jinku, who is a partner joining us from Sydney. Hi, Shu. Hey, Wendy. And Brad Popple, who's a senior associate joining us from Melbourne. Thanks, Wendy. Hi, Brad. Shu, I think I'll kick off with you first, the guru of all things employment law. So pay secrecy. So pay secrecy with the changes that are coming in that are really trying to encourage employees to talk about their pay to deal with the gender pay gap. They've already kicked in. They're already on our doorstep. 
there's a bit of an assumption I think out there this just really applies to contracts of employment and all you have to do is take out the words privileged and confidential and then you're compliant so I'm really keen to hear from you is that right? Thanks Wendy um, right in part because that's the easy and obvious part of it um, the problem is the pay secrecy provisions go much further they pick up the fair work instruments so that's modern awards enterprise agreements workplace determinations all of those sorts of things but then the kicker in the legislation is those magic words or any other written agreement with an employee now it's what those words mean which is the bit which is going to broaden the application of these provisions so off the top you look at things like promotion letters, you're going to look at variation letters, and you're going to look potentially at separation documents. So whether they are termination letters or uh, if you sign a deed of release, you might end up um, being caught. And then you say, all right, well, what else is there in other written agreements? And one of the areas that we are seeing a lot of discussion and a lot of realisation that th these provisions could capture is in relation to incentive arrangements. Because you think about those, how they are tracked and how they are determined relates to performance work and they are certainly considered remuneration by individuals. So what that means is those grant letters which are issued and then your plan rules which apply. And a number of those plan rules will contain confidentiality obligations which apply in respect of the terms of the grant and the operation of the arrangements. So those ones are also going um, to be caught. So you have to start thinking about well how do we deal with those and how do we get around it? Do we just simply say they're not strictly private and confidential anymore or does there need to be a bit more thought around that? And for those uh, listeners who are in publicly listed companies, you just have to think about how you go about um, implementing those changes. So those couple of little words at the end uh, have a much broader uh, impact than just the yield uh, contract of employment. I think one of the things I, I've been seeing people grapple with is the extent to which you actually communicate these changes to your workforce and how open you are about it. There's some companies that have been quite open, others that haven't. Are you seeing any HR issues already with people sharing their pay? Obviously, there's various reasons why you might do this, why you might have different levels based on performance, et cetera. But what are you seeing um, in the market? Look, not immediately. I think it's a sleeper issue and it is something that's going to take a little bit of time uh, to. Uh, play out and I say that for, for two reasons. One is I think practically there's always been a level where employees have discussed and shared their pay details regardless of whatever's been in their contracts and the question is have employers really decided that is the issue that they're going to fight and discipline people about. When you look at the current labour market conditions, pretty difficult um, to to do. But what I think is going to be interesting is looking ahead, let's see where this leads us to. So if you look at the discussions I've had with some of my UK 
colleagues about this. In the UK, there are certain companies that are required to disclose their earnings data um, by gender and also um, comparing CEO remuneration with the rest of their workforce. So this is not new and it's something that other um, jurisdictions have dealt with. Um, and I, so I think that is coming and we will see a lot more information being shared. And that's when I think there are going to be issues um, that arise. And what that means again is people need to get ahead of this. They need to be doing the work to identify if there's an issue, why is there an issue? As you said, Wendy, there may be really good re and defensible reasons why there are differences in pay between different cohorts. Um, but don't know that you're not in a position to respond and that's when you're on the back foot because you either can't communicate or you haven't taken steps to to rectify the issue very interesting thanks so much Hugh. brad i'm keen to hear from you a favorite topic is bargaining you and i debate this all the time but trends you're seeing i mean people are in the middle of bargaining rounds now we're through covid and there was a bit of a lull with bargaining what are you seeing today about what's happening out there, because I think that helps contextualise the bargaining discussion that we're about to have. Yeah, a few interesting things, I suppose. As you said, I think we all felt as if bargaining um, was really put on hold by many businesses, many of our clients during the course of the pandemic. I mean, they had just changes coming at them uh, thick and fast with changes to um, you know, working from home mandates and all of those sorts of things. So we thought sort of through that in, in a large sense. And I think, again, uh, the anecdotal sense that we all feel, I think, is that in the past sort of 12 months or so, we've started to see the usual bargaining cycles um, restart. The backlog of expired agreements that arose during the pandemic, that they are starting to be worked through and, and cleared. Um, and the most recent data from the Fair Work Commission you know, bears that out, particularly at the end of 2022, when you, again, you look at the quarterly data that's released by the Commission, um, there is a, a greater number of enterprise agreement approval applications being made, which again just indicates that bargaining is, you know, the usual bargaining cycle is, is kicking off. Um, at the same time, you know, we've seen wage increases uh, really depressed during the course of the pandemic. Um, they are on the move again already, uh, still at reasonably low levels historically, but certainly not what they were a few years ago. So, you know, again, the most recent data. Um, annual average wage increases under enterprise agreements is back up at around about the three and a half percent mark. Um, so, you know, a, a good measure higher than they were, you know, for the last sort of three or four years. Uh, so I think from that you'd say, well, you know, the bargaining was, you know, considered to be on life support for a while. Perhaps it's no longer on life support, it's in intensive care, but not quite so critical and things are starting to, to sort of kick back up again. I, I think that's the sense that I feel. I'm not sure about you, Wendy and Rach and, and Shu and your practices, but I think that's what we're all experiencing. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think obviously the big purpose of this legislation is to really take bargaining off life support, as you call it, and bring it back to the fore and really push wages up. So wondering whether, and it's a big call, big question for you, but whether this legislation and things like multi-employer bargaining and changes in the leverage that employers have in bargaining, how that's kind of gonna influence some of these trends. You know, what do you think? What's your crystal ball? 
Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the reforms obviously as we work through today. But you know, the objective of the reforms is in the name: secure jobs, better pay. It's pretty clear um, that the intention of the legislation is to you know continue to revitalise bargaining, uh, and that's already happening, as I said. And I think it will continue to happen. The legislation will be effective in that sense. Um, you know, I, I sort of think about these reforms as operating at, at two levels. You know, on the one hand, you've got uh, a range of new uh, tools and levers that are available to unions to increase the prevalence of bargaining, the coverage of employees by enterprise agreements, and you know, elevate bargaining outcomes. You've got those those new tools and levers that are available, uh, although most of those, of course, are not yet in play. The legislation is, of course, law, but we've got the transitional provisions that phase the implementation of those new tools. Uh, so that's the sort of direct impact of the legislation. But the other more indirect uh, level at which it operates is that it creates uncertainty. It results in a lack of control or a reduction in control, at least by employers in terms of what they have in their employment enterprise agreements. Uh, and in order to deal with that, many employers are looking to make enterprise agreements uh, you know, quickly and early. And to do that, uh, there's, a, there's a price to be paid, and that is to, um, to offer enterprise agreements on terms that are uh, more generous, such that they're uh, embraced and, and endorsed by employees early in the process. And I, I think it's that indirect impact of the reforms which we're starting to see now, and perhaps which explains at least in part some of the trends that I spoke about a moment ago in terms of you know, enterprise bargaining presently. It's that hard balance, isn't it? Locking in an agreement for a while with very high wage outcomes for <laughs> for the foreseeable future in a kind of uncertain economy versus, you know, holding the line and waiting and preparing for, for June, I think. Um, go ahead, Brad, sorry. I was just going to say, I think that's right. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see once some of these bargaining reforms uh, take effect, how they then play out over the following sort of 12 months. So we're in for a bit of a, a slow burn on these, I think, to see exactly what, what ultimately happens. So our favourite topic, multi-employer bargaining, I think it's one of the key things that employers uh, are obviously watching quite, quite closely. I think there's going to be a review of this regime next year because uh, of the potential impacts that this could have on all industries, really. If you look at what the MWU have said quite publicly, they've said they'll use the regime, they'll leverage it across industries like paper manufacturing, printing and rail sectors, and they'll use it as a bit of a pattern bargaining regime or pattern bargaining tool um, similar to what we see in the construction industry. So I often hear, Rach, employers say to me, we're paying our employees at the top of market. Compared to our competitors, we are way ahead. We've got a really good relationship with our employees. We just don't have to worry about pattern bargaining, uh, multi-employer bargaining. So do you think that's right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, certainly the narrative around the need for this reform was about providing workers in low paid and female dominated jobs and sectors with more power so they could negotiate higher wage increases. But the actual amendments to the Fair Work Act aren't restricted in that way. They're not expressly directed towards any particular industry and they apply to all employees. You know, for example, they haven't been limited to exclude employees who are over the high income cap or any of those types of limitations that, that people were seeking. Um, and what that means is that even high paid industries can find themselves facing multi-employer bargaining if the unions see that as having a good strategic reason for, for doing so or 
perhaps they're seeking to influence other terms and conditions not directly related to remuneration, such as rosters and hours of work and flexible working arrangements. Um, you know, in, in practice, the circumstances which result in an organisation being caught up in an industrial campaign by a union or a workforce is really complex. You know, it's partly driven by union agenda, um, significantly influenced by the resourcing um, available to unions and the decisions they make about where they're going to direct that resources, partially driven by the concerns and issues and agendas which arise from that particular workforce and, of course, really importantly, impacted by employers and, and what they choose to do in that space. And high paying employers are not immune from any of that. They never have been and they're not under this new system either. But what I think this new system means is that that assessment, those factors are even more complex as we start to see what a, how a union agenda plays out across industries. Um, you know, talking of my own experience here in, in Western Australia, what we've seen recently in the offshore oil and gas industries that unions are very incentivised to put quite a lot of resources into high paid industries. Um, and, and I suspect we'll continue to see that play out under this new regime as well. It's interesting, isn't it? I think the other point of this is, if you're going to bring multiple employers together, you kind of do want some who are high paying and some who are low, because of course that puts pressure on the lower, more lower paid to bring up their rates to the higher paid. So. There needs yeah. to be someone at the top, right? Um, it'll be interesting yeah. to see whether with multi-employer bargaining, bargaining takes a long time anyway. It, it's going to be interesting, the strategic decisions that they're going to make around how many employers they bring into that process, given how long things can actually take. And and their, you know, ultimate um, aim is to, is to get pay increases and get great terms and conditions for employees. But of course, the longer that takes, the more problems start to arise. So Brad, do you have anything else that you want to add to that? No, I, I agree. I mean, when you look at the detail of the multi-employer bargaining uh, framework, I think it, it's pretty clear that if, if a union was to try and make a multi-agreement with many employers, uh, it just becomes a morass that's going to be very difficult to navigate. And it's very difficult to then uh, you know, narrow the field of who is in the mix with this uh, multi-employer negotiation. And so I just wonder if the better strategic play would be to make a smaller multi-agreement, uh, you know, you know it, it, with employers who do pay well uh, and then rely upon the roping in provisions to expand that agreement after the fact. We'll talk about roping in in a minute, I think, Wendy. But um, I, so I think that, uh, you know, smaller agreements with higher paying employers in the market is probably the way it will play out. But, you know, again, we'll just have to wait and see. Let's talk about roping in because I think some people haven't quite caught on to this concept. So obviously the first point of multi-employer bargaining is a single interest employer author authorisation and let's say the majority of your employees agree to the regime, then it goes to the commission and they go through the test and um, you have the, obviously the right to put, put evidence and submissions up at that point. But let's say you aren't pulled into that process because maybe you have an interim agreement or because that one of the tests aren't met and the commission's on your side. Rach, does that mean you're done and multi-employer and bargaining doesn't apply and you can breathe easy for the life of your agreement? How does, it, how does all this work? 
Yeah, well, you're right to identify the roping in provisions as being key here. And I think we're past that world where once there's an enterprise agreement up, you know that with some certainty that that is how it will apply for, for the rest of its term. These new provisions that are contained in the new regime mean that a union can apply to have an employer included in a multi-employer agreement that's already been made and already been approved by the Commission if there's majority support from that employer's employees to be roped in and the Commission is satisfied that that's in, in the public interest. And as is the case with the Fair Work Act, the public interest test isn't defined, um, but you look at the explanatory memorandum for the bill, which says it would likely be satisfied if an agreement um, stopped a race to the bottom on wages and encouraged competition on quality and, and innovation. And, you know, that that's, gives a, a level of uncertainty. I think there's concern that that can play out as an assessment of whether this particular employee that's the target of the application is, is paying less than the other employers that are already captured in that agreement and whether in those circumstances that public interest test um, would be satisfied. Um, we know that it's fairly easy for unions to um, be able to get majority support um, from em employers in many circumstances. Um, and so look, I think this is just a really good reason to be keeping an eye on what your competitors are doing, what's going on across your site and within, within your industry. Yeah, I know that a lot of um, people that I'm talking to are, are thinking about these changes holistically, like how does this actually change my overall ER strategy? But the, the thing that's taking the time is trying to kind of almost do risk assessments of each side and how likely this is and then building in mitigation plans both for, you know, during bargaining, um, once we get an agreement up and really managing the expiry pretty carefully in the plan for the next stage because obviously the roping in really kicks in once you hit hit your expiry date. You want to be well prepared before that time to know what is the plan. So. Brad, do you have anything else that you want to add to that? Well, just to say that, um, you know, this question of, you know, the extent to which an interim agreement provides you with uh, with protection, I mean, certainly to a significant degree it does for the reason you just mentioned, Wendy. This also touches upon one of the really interesting questions, though, about the difference between the single interest employer, multi-employer bargaining stream and supported bargaining uh, multi-employer stream. Uh, because under the supported bargaining stream, which is supposed to be the analogue for the low-paid bargaining, the former low-paid bargaining system, uh, the, the multi-employer agreement can trump even uh, an, a, an enterprise agreement, a single enterprise agreement that hasn't yet nominally expired. Uh, so it's still an in-term single enterprise agreement still provides some exception, some protection, unless there is evidence that the employer has made that agreement with a view to avoiding being trapped in multi-employer bargaining. So. Um, a, a narrow sort of exception, but still the risk that an employer with an interim enterprise agreement might be dragged into a, a multi-agreement. Yeah. There are a lot of people that are in the middle of bargaining, trying to kind of run the race to the June um, deadline when these changes come in. I know that many are kind of looking at their bargaining rounds. We're in this crazy kind of environment where we've got high CPI, high wages claims, um, you know, things are getting to an impasse pretty quickly in relation to wages, even if you get everything else sorted. Many are going, we're trying to get this done as soon as possible. We don't really have to worry about multi-employer bargaining because we're bargaining directly with our workforce and relevant unions. Do you, do you think that's right, Brad? 
Well, again, this sort of goes back to what we were just talking about in the sense that there are some limited protections that, you, that, that employers can uh, avail themselves of uh, against the prospect of multi-employer bargaining. One is having an interim agreement, uh, subject to what I said about the supported bargaining stream that provides protection. Um, but otherwise, there are you know, protections that are available for employers where they've got, for instance, written agreement with a, a bargaining representative that they'll you know, negotiate to replace their um, single enterprise agreement. Uh, or protections where there is a you know a history of effective enterprise bargaining at that site. So uh, it is important to continue focusing on uh, engagement, you know, employers' engagement at their sites and uh, you know fostering good bargaining culture and good employment culture. That that can help, uh, but it's not necessarily a you know, magic panacea. I don't think, Wendy. Particularly if you do get roped into a single interest employer authorisation, because once you do any bargaining that's on foot on the side for a single, you've got to stop it, right? So mm. you don't have much choice in the matter. You then get pulled into the multi multi regime and um, have meetings with everyone. And that's right. And that's sort of what I was touching on earlier about uh, how bargaining with many employers becomes a morass, because of course employers who are included in multi-employer bargaining can no longer make a single enterprise agreement or negotiate for one. But even more than that, the circumstances in which the Commission can exclude that employer from uh, multi-employer bargaining are really narrow and there needs to be a material change to the employer's circumstances such that the Commission even has the power to allow that employer to bargain on its own again. So it's quite a restrictive, uh, restrictive test. Yeah, totally agree. Rach, just keen to hear from you. Um, let's assume you're an employer, you're in a non-unionised industry, um, you haven't bargained under the Fair Work Act, there's still a lot of these employers out there. Mm. Do you think that those types of employers can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief and put multi-employer bargaining to one side and not worry about it? Well, I, th I think it's still right to continue to consider to what extent is your business of interest to unions and to continue to engage directly with employees as, as much as possible and be resolving concerns and disputes within your organisation. You know, that, that strategy um, remains um, appropriate given um, these new tests also still require majority support. But I think as I, as I said earlier, those circumstances that can lead to an industrial campaign at a particular um, employer is, is really complex and that hasn't changed, but it has arguably become a lot more complex. And I think we may see some employers who haven't previously um, been a target um, be caught up in a campaign that's actually aimed at an industry or aimed at another organisation because having your organisation involved provides the union with some type of of leverage in that bargaining. Um, and I think as we touched on before, the, the campaigns across industries can be a concern for players at both ends of the, the pay spectrum. Um, I think there'll be players at the lower end of the industry who are facing the prospects of being dragged along with, with larger players and what impact that's going to have to their operations. And there's those at the other end that are likely to be targeted to be used as the tide stick for industry terms and conditions because they're already up the top and they've got the pockets to, to pay for. And I guess in some ways, those who haven't bargained under the Fair Work Act are at particular um, risk because they don't have an interim enterprise agreement and they don't have a history of efficient bargaining that they're going to be able to point to as the, one of the reasons why they shouldn't be involved in multi-employer bargaining. So that might not be a good reason to 
suddenly take a really different approach to your employment model. Um, but I think it is certainly good reason to be carefully scrutinising your model now and testing whether it's still fit for purpose and what risks it presents in this new world. Speaking of the new world, this is not a new world for many employers throughout the world. They, there are many countries that have this concept of multi-employer bargaining. So why the big hoo-ha here, Brad? Like, why is this different for us when, well, you know, it is yeah. a worldwide kind of phenomenon? This is a really interesting topic, I think. And, you know, I think it's got to be borne in mind that our system in Australia is really quite unique in a whole range of different ways. I mean, you know, importantly, of course, we've got the national employment standards enshrined in legislation. We've got a pretty comprehensive and complicated system of modern awards, modern industry and occupational awards that provide a safety net for employees. And that's not something, neither of those things are common in other countries. Um, but the, the bargaining frameworks that apply in different countries is, of course, different uh, as well. And, you know, you take Belgium, for example, which is one of the countries that was referred to as part of the Secure Jobs, Better Pay Senate inquiry uh, as being you know, a, a reference point for multi-employer bargaining. Uh, you know, they do have multi-employer bargaining, that's true, and they do have uh, some of the strongest laws around multi-employer bargaining. Um, but, you know, sector agreements in, in Belgium are negotiated between you know, unions and employers, peak bodies, in circumstances where, you know, for a start, there is 60% union membership in the private sector, 80% of employers and members of the peak body. So there's a genuine sort of representative um, uh, process going on. Um, but at the same time, at least according to the OECD, uh, those multi-employer multi agreements over in Belgium, they last for an average of uh, around about two years and they can be terminated on notice where the agreement provides for that. Uh, so again, vastly different to the way in which we uh, conduct enterprise bargaining or regulate enterprise bargaining here. Um, and so, you know, that's just one example, right? Belgium's just one example. But I think the key point is if you, you're going to draw parallels with international frameworks, you've got to look at it as a whole uh, and make sure you're comparing apples with apples rather than just, you know, simplistically saying, well, you know, multi-employer bargaining exists and therefore it, you know, it, it should all be treated the same. I think the other point that really distinguishes us from the rest of the world a little bit is the system of modern awards, right? We have minimum terms and conditions across industries, which a lot of companies don't have. So the multi-employer bargaining regime is almost like the award system overseas. So it is going to be interesting to see how that plays out with, you know, reviews to awards as well. And it maybe we'll see increasing test cases to change awards, which flows into bargaining. Anyway, it's going to be a very interesting time to be in industrial relations. So, Rach, what do we do? What do we do to prepare for 6, 6 June? <laughs> What's your tips? No magic, unfortunately, but I think they're the tips that we've already covered so far. So in particular, you know, an assessment of the industrial instruments, um, the enterprise agreements that you already have within your organisation and when they expire, what does that look like across your industry? Um, and once you can have a look at when those expiry dates kind of align, you'll be able to identify if a risk of multi-employer bargaining arises, what it could look like, you know, what other players you might possibly be involved in and when that risk will actually arise. Um, and then I think staying informed and connected to other industry players so that there's an understanding of who's moving when. And in the later part of this year, as we start to see some of this bargaining kicking off and perhaps start to have some decisions coming out, um, keeping really close to that and being able to take learnings um, really quickly. And in the context of all of that, 
retesting your IR strategy now and your engagement model now. Um, and even if you're not going to be one of the, the players that make big, bold moves now in preparation for the new legislation, being nimble and ready to move um, if what we see later in the year requires it. I think the other thing is just preparation, right? Like thinking about preparation far earlier than what we generally do, making sure that, you know, with not only these bargaining changes, but also changes to the boot, changes to the genuine agreement test and what the statement of principles look like, which we don't quite know yet, making sure that we're well prepared way before the bargaining round kicks off to know what are our claims going to be, what are our positions going to be and how we're going to deal with some of these um, things that could, could get thrown our way. So I, th I just think preparing way early is just going to be more vital than ever. Yeah, and I think if there is key issues within a workforce that can be addressed early outside of any type of bargaining regime, that still continues to be good advice to do so and probably more important than ever to be really carefully testing that. Agreed. So let's change tact a little bit. Um, I think people, different people have different views on these changes, too. So flexible work. You know that you know in many discussions I'm having with legal teams, with HR teams, we're really grappling with this kind of new world of the wonderful things that I guess flexibility and work from home can give us. But we're also trying to balance, making sure that people are coming into the office and there's that kind of maintain, we're able to maintain the wonderful culture that we have and the leadership that I guess the leaders being in the office can give more junior employees. And there's so many wonderful things about, um, about being in the office, but the flexible work changes that they're making is really the first step, I think, to pushing this area a lot further. You know, we've already come 20 years, probably in two years in terms of acceptance of these arrangements. The, the changes really expand eligibility slightly, put some more process steps and some quite strict timing requirements in the process to respond to those requests and introducing the, dis the ability to, to dispute refusals in the commission. So I'm just wondering what you think about these changes do you think that they'll impact employers in a big way? Uh, is there going to be a lot more prep that we're going to have to do before we um, look at refusing these requests where they're just unworkable? What's your thoughts on this? Thanks, Wendy. And I mean, it's a really significant issue and it's a practical issue that's been facing a lot of employers. Um, the, the way people have worked and where they have worked has really changed uh, and due to that thing we won't mention but I will which is COVID and how that really changed where how, how work is done and the legislation is really not only just keeping up with those changes but now taking that step further because we've we've always had we've had provisions in relation to flexible working and as you as you mentioned there's been some tweaks that have been made and it's really about what the impact of those things are. And spoiler alert, I'll cut to the chase, which is you need to be prepared, you need to think, and you need to be able to respond uh, in perhaps a bit more detail than you might have done previously. But it's really BAU, it's just now perhaps putting a bit more time into your thinking around considering the request. If you approve it, great. If you don't approve it, why is it that you don't? 
prove it because you need to be able to articulate the reasons as to why that is the case and now be prepared to be able to um, defend those if you get challenged because that's one of the really big changes is that previously there wasn't really an approach for an employee whose flexible work request was rejected to take um, an approach and to challenge that. Now, if the employer refuses the request, they have to provide reasons for that refusal and provide reasonable business grounds uh, that underpins that. And we'll talk about some changes around where that could, uh, could go. Um, but that's not at large. And that's the thing, the, the legislation says, reasonable business grounds are limited to effectively five things. It's too, too costly. There's no capacity to change the working arrangements. Their changes would be impractical because of changes to existing employees or to hire new employees. It'll result in significant loss of efficiency or productivity, uh, or that they're likely to have a significant negative impact on customer service. So not at large, you've really got to get down um, into the, the detail. And if the employee doesn't agree, then the employee can now challenge that uh, and take it to the, the Fair Work Commission. And that includes where the employer doesn't respond within the 21 day limit. So if you don't respond, it's effectively a deemed refusal. So being very clear on when the request comes in, the clock starts ticking and being able to respond promptly and um, efficiently um, will be key. Now, as I said, there's always been this, uh, there's been this ability um, for a while. And what I was always intrigued about in terms of those provisions was they weren't used in a way to ground, for example, an adverse action claim in that, the request was made, the request was rejected, and then that grounds an adverse um, action claim. I just haven't seen um, that happen. I am hoping that it'll be a similar path with these changes, but um, it might surprise some people, but I've been wrong in the past. So it may be that we do see a new wave of um, claims coming through to the commission uh, around the these requests. Uh, I think that's right. Like uh, my sense, my spidey sense is that we're gonna get, this is gonna be one of those hidden areas where we're gonna be in the commission a lot. I think there's, there's the obviously the white collar workers who want to work from home full time, who are gonna kind of, I suspect there's gonna continue to be disputes about that. And then I think increasingly the interesting area is in, the group of employees that operationally haven't been able to work flexibly, like the production workers or people where they really have to be there. You know, there was a case recently with ambulance officers um, where the employer lost that action. Um, uh, so I think that kind of operational space, not just the white collar, is going to be really interesting to see how that flows through. I think the other thing is just the practical issues around implementing this at a in an organisational space where 
the organisation is quite large, I think will actually be quite difficult. I think people are still grappling with, should this be HR-led? Should this be leader-led? How do we make sure this is a bit centralised so that we know decisions, what decisions are being made and, you know, employee A is given the same opportunity as employee B and that's, you know, kind of centralised in a way that makes sure we have a bit of a consistent approach. I think that's some of the practical problems of, of um, grappling with, I guess, some of these, the, the more increase, I think, of requests in this space. I think that's people are having to make decisions and and decide operationally how we who's who's going to lead this and how we're going to make sure that we're not only complying with the with the Fair Work Act requirements but we're dealing with these kinds of requests in in a fair way. Um, given that it's really critical to employee engagement in a really tight labour market. Um, I think. That's right. And I think uh, the point you touched upon in terms of that centralisation, because there will be a bit of effort that's required to be able to respond promptly. So not having to reinvent the wheel and looking at treating like cases in a like manner um, will be important, not just from the, the legal perspective, which the boring lawyers are interested in, but from that really dealing with it from an organisational perspective around we treat people fairly, we treat our people equally, all of those things um, will need to be seen and employees will pick up on that very quickly uh, if there are differences in, in treatment and the question will be asked why. Just before we move on to kind of what the rest of the year looks like, there's a lot of talk around flexible work. It seems to me like this is the first tranche of changes. So just just so that people can understand what may be coming next, what does that look like, Shu? Um, there's a few different things. Um, so the Greens and uh, the Labor-led Senate Select Committee um, made four key recommendations. So. One is that the request, uh, the right to request this be broadened to all employees. So potentially everyone will be um, covered by this. Two is that the ability for an employer to reject it will only be on the grounds of unjustifiable hardship. So not the reasonable business grounds, it actually takes it even further than that. Um, so it will really be moving towards making it much more difficult to um, successfully um, refuse. There'll also be potentially a positive duty to consult with employees about flexible work requests uh, and the right to appeal to the um, Fair Work Commission to be allowed for those decisions. Now, this is all what's in the Select Committee um, report. So it's not on, it's not yet law, but it might be what we're looking at um, down, down the track. Um, you know, I'm not sure exactly what that timing is, but it's certainly worth being aware of that I don't think this is something that's going to go away. Um, it is going to be, there's going to be an ongoing discussion uh, in this space. Yeah, probably on the cards for 2024, I suspect. Yeah. So Turning to the rest of 2023, Rach, first half of the year, we're already at the end of February. Oh my God. Um, what's going to happen between now and June? What, yes. What's on the agenda? 
Well, negotiations have commenced in respect of the ALP second tranche of IR reform, not as much media coverage, and I think it's been a bit overshadowed by the legislation for referendum on the Indigenous voice, but it's been announced that the current session of Parliament that runs through to the end of March will progress um, various legislative changes. So uh, a key one is, is putting super into the NES. Um, you know, at the moment, um, the requirement to pay super sits separate legislation, super legislation. There is references in the modern award to the requirement to, to pay um, super. So what this is really about, putting it into the NES, is about bringing recovery of super into the world of the FWO, the Ombudsman and the Fair Work Commission jurisdiction along with underpayments for other NES entitlements. So really this will have an impact in respect of employees who fall outside of the, the modern awards. Um, another key sort of related change is reforming the four yearly review of super default fund provisions. Um, also on the cards is clarifying the application of the Fair Work Act protection for migrant workers, so making it clear that those protections in the Act continue to apply regardless um, of, of visa status. There's also changes on the card to parental leave, both paid and, and unpaid parental leave, so including proposed amendments to the Paid Parental Leave Act to enable both parents to um, access the full paid parental leave entitlements of 100 days um, flex flexibly, um, which will just limit um, uh, some of the circumstances at the moment where people are unable to access it because of their particular uh, working arrangements with their partner. Um, also on the cards is clarification around workplace determinations and that when one comes into effect, the, the enterprise agreement no longer operate. So just another clarifying change. Um, there's also proposals around simplifying the process of making deductions from pay under section 324 of the Fair Work Act so that when there are deductions that are regularly made from employers but which vary from pay to pay in terms of the amount of the deduction, the employer would no longer be required to obtain a separate written consent from the employee each time. So it seems to be a very sensible proposed change. Um, and then finally, um, changes proposed at providing casual workers in the black coal mining industry with the same access to long service leave entitlements as their um, permanent counterparts. So quite a bit happening um, in the first half of the year, even if it's not the big sort of closing the loophole changes that are, are planned for later in the year. Yeah, I think they're termed by Labor as the non-controversial ones, and I think the the deduction ones are a work. Hopefully, we'll wait for them. I'm going to wait for them, but I'm hoping that they fix a lot of the questions that I get about deductions. Um, yes. Through second half of the year, the controversial stuff hit me. What what does it entail? What's it going to be? Look, I'm not sure we're going to get through the first half of the year with all all those changes, but when we get to the second half of the year. Um, Casual employees, um, we're going to apparently have an objective test uh, for determining uh, when an employee is a casual employee. So all of that other case law and all the other stuff we've had gone before it will be magically fixed um, and it will all be very clear. Uh, you'll know exactly when a person um, is a casual and when they are not. So I, for one, look forward to that um, simple three-line provision in the Act that will deal uh, with that one. Um, then we move on to our 
contractors and what we're going to do potentially is allow the Fair Work Commission to set minimum standards for uh, employee-like forms of work. Uh, so we'll also have uh, minimum standards for workers in the road uh, transport industry. Uh, those with a few more grey hairs will remember the Road Safety Remuneration uh, Tribunal and the fund that that had and Chapter 6 of the New South Wales Commission, all those things. So we'll see how that all um, interacts. Uh, we will also deal with the gig economy um, and a, amend the definition of employee to include the gig economy. Um, you think about how many times the word employee um, is in the Fair Work Act. So that will be a big um, piece of work. Uh, and then the, again, for independent contractors, being able to challenge unfair contract terms in the Fair Work Commission. So all of that um, going into the, the Fair Work Commission, that's going to increase their workload uh, significantly because we're going to have a whole stack of new things um, to deal with there. So that will be really interesting to see. And then, uh, um, the last one I want to touch on is uh, wage theft. Um, there's been, you know, this is a topic that we have covered and will continue um, to cover, but uh, Labor is proposing that there will be uh, criminalisation of wage theft, increases in penalties, uh, and um, somewhat interestingly, I think, to increase the um, responsibility for compliance um, we, to corporations who who are the in effect the economic decision makers. So we are looking at uh, franchisors and those who are uh, higher up in the supply chain. Now this is not this concept in itself is not new, but it is again looking at um, you know really having those higher ups in the chain having to get into a lot more detail in operations that they wouldn't necessarily. Um, have either the time, the resource or the capacity um, to do so. So a little bit there for, for thought uh, in, the, in the second half of the year. And, and obviously the consultation is continuing. The government is speaking to employer organisations and unions about all of these things. But what we're talking about today is the things that the public said that they'll do, um, the ins and outs of what that means and how it'll be how it'll play it into the legislation that'll be introduced second half of the year. We'll have to wait and see um, as the consult continues. Brad, what about you? What's left second half well, of the year? If, yeah, as if all of that isn't enough on its own. The other really big one that's on everyone's lips, of course, is the uh, same job, same pay legislation, which of course refers to requirements that uh, workers employed or employees of contractors uh, such as labour hire, for instance, be paid the same uh, as the employees of the, uh, you know, the the host where they're performing work. Um, so precisely what the boundaries of all that will be, we don't know. We of course saw a members bill uh, a couple of years ago now, um, which was very very broadly drafted in terms of you know working out what it means to perform the same job and what is included in you know the concept of same pay. Uh, you know, some of those aspects of that bill, I think, will probably be wound back. I think they were, you know, broadly regarded on both sides of the aisle as probably being a little bit too broad. So that'll be wound back uh, to a degree, I think. Um, but you know, 
those uh, types of requirements, whatever form they take, are going to be really challenging for many employers to manage. And the other thing that I think is interesting is when you marry that up with you know, the idea of multi-employer bargaining, which we've already spoken about, but of course gives rise to a capacity for you know, vertically integrated supply chains to be covered by the one instrument and therefore you know, being paid the same amounts. You, know, you, you combine that with uh, same job, same pay legislation, uh, and it does create some, you know, I think, a pretty challenging regulatory regime to, to navigate for employers who, or businesses who, who rely upon supplementary labour. So, uh, as I said, same job, same pay is a huge one to watch. But beyond that, uh, there's talk of some uh, stronger protections in the discrimination space, potentially collapsing the uh, various discrimination uh, laws, you know, pieces of legislation into one, uh, you know, one stop shop. Um, but we'll have to wait and see what the detail behind that is uh, in due course. But um, whichever way you cut it, a huge year in 2023, I think. Huge. Um, one of the questions that we've got is about zombie agreements, so feel free, whoever um, wants to jump in. I know that the Commission put out a huge list the other day of every single agreement they have on file, it seems like. If you have a current agreement in place, you also looked at that list and you have a bazillion zombie agreements. Obviously, the obligation is to give notice in relation to the automatic sunsetting of those provisions in the first half of this year before they then sunset at the end of the year. And there's obviously an application process if you want to extend that. But I think it's a really important question. Do you have to go through that list and give notice in relation to every one of those agreements? Brad, do you want to take this one? There is a process, that's right, Wendy. So it's a, it's a matter of going through and ascertaining, first of all, whether you have uh, you know, zombie agreements, such as they are, uh, that cover employees. Then if you do, there's a process of, of um, you know, notifying employees of what the consequence of the zombie, you know, the sunsetting provisions will be. And uh, there's a capacity for those zombie agreements to be extended in life uh, upon an application to the Commission. So a, a detailed process for employers to go through if they do think or if they're concerned that they might have uh, an old, uh, an old enterprise agreement made pre-Fair Work Act. But I think the important part is also that you actually need to go through and see whether they've wholly been replaced by other agreements because if there's an agreement on that list that has been wholly replaced the next bargaining round, same coverage, you don't have to worry about that old agreement. Whereas let's say you had a really broad zombie agreement that covered managers and then at a later point, you reduce the coverage down to just blue collar workers, that agreement technically continues in relation to the managers. So commission obviously couldn't have done that exercise. It would have been impossible. So it's a bit of an exercise to actually go through that list, look at coverage, look at, you know, which ones actually still apply. I've also got a number of clients that still have IT as an AWA and have to delve through, you know, hard copy files to try and find them to go through that process as well. So I think, yeah, if you are in that space of having zombie agreements, give us a call because it's quite a mess at the moment. Um, and it's not as simple as kind of just going through that list. Um, controversial, Brad, 
you're an ex-union official. Bargaining service fees have got a lot of a lot of press coverage. The unions are really trying to push this concept of non-union members um, being required to pay some sort of fee if there's a negotiated outcome that the unions helped. Um, it seems to me that the ALP aren't going to push this forward just based on their comments and that it's not going to be a this year thing. But but what's your view on this? Well, it'd be, you know, it'd be a really controversial change, obviously. But I mean, you, you take a step back and, and it seems to me that declining union membership is, is clearly the number one existential issue for the union movement at the moment. Uh, I mean, you know, private sector union membership is around about 9%. That is the continuation of a long-term downward trend in Australia, but also internationally. Uh, but then on the other hand, you've got comments from you know, Tim Kennedy, the National Secretary of the UWU, for example, saying that in order for a multi-employer bargain to be sustainable, union membership needs to at least double. Uh, and so you know, something the unions would say needs to be done to arrest that, that trend. What that is, we don't know, of course. There is, as you said, that push for a bargaining services fee. Uh, and you know, that, again, will be a very controversial change. But I think we're at the, at the point of this, um, you know, this campaign or this push, if you like, uh, where it's just a matter of the ACTU and, and uh, you know, unions wanting to put the issue of a bargaining services fee in the, in the conversation. Uh, it's not getting a lot of wholesale support at the moment, but as long as it's in the conversation, I think, I think it will be, continue to be something that's pushed for. Uh, and who knows? Um, we'll never, we'll, you know, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out. But as I said, I think it's one of those issues which is, you know, going to be really central, really close to the heart of the union movement. Is not going to go away um, uh, quickly. Thanks, Brad. Um, I think we'll start to wrap up there. Thank you all for joining us today. There's a lot in this topic. There's a lot of things still to discuss, I think, and debate around this, both in terms of what is actually in the legislation that's passed, but also what's coming. So I think everyone has a lot of planning that they're trying to fit into their day job. So we hope that this session was really helpful for you. Um, we will make today's recording available on our website, you can send that and share that with your colleagues. Of course, we're doing a number of these tailored sessions for individual businesses. So please reach out to your HSF um, contact if you'd like to discuss that. Keep in mind there's a wealth of material that we'll put that we've already got on our website um, about the changes and we'll continue to update that as the year progresses. But I really encourage you to reach out to talk to us about these things. Um, where dealing with this across a lot of different industries and might have some ideas on, on how we can help you. So thank you all very much for joining. Um, have a great week and thank you to our wonderful presenters for your contributions today.